before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the means of grace that you have given to us, that you have prepared for us this communion feast. And Lord, though we are unworthy to sit down as guests, we totally rely on the merit of Jesus Christ and his work. We thank you, Lord, for the invitation to partake of what represents his body and his blood. Lord, may we remember in this supper his eternal love, his boundless grace, his infinite compassion, his agony of the cross, his redemption, the assurance of forgiveness that we have as believers, our adoption into his family, eternal life, and his glory. Lord, we pray that these outward elements that we have partaken of nourish our body so that by your spirit, Lord, you may revive our soul until the day when we will hunger and thirst no more. Lord, as we come to pray our prayer this morning, I ask you, Father, to hear me as I pray about man's greatest need. And Lord, there's one thing that man needs, and that is salvation in and through Jesus Christ. Man's greatest need, Lord, is to be saved from his sins, to be saved from eternal judgment and condemnation. And Lord, man's greatest end is to glorify you with all of our being and to do all that we can do good for our fellow man. Lord, life is not worth having if we don't live it for your glory. Lord, life is not worth having if we don't have an upward gaze, gazing upon you, gazing upon Christ. Lord, our earnest desire should not be riches and honor and the pleasures of this life and the wealth and, and greatness in this world. Lord, those things are false. They bring a false hope. They bring false delusions. And Lord, those who pursue after those things are miserable. They sleep in misery. They wake in misery. They live their days in misery, pursuing the pleasures of this life and the riches of this life. Lord, all of our happiness, all of our true joy consists in, in loving you and consists in being holy as you are holy. Lord, the pursuit in this world will fail us. It will always turn up empty because, Lord, it is never meant to satisfy. Well, help us as believers to, to see this and not be caught in the trap that the world lays for us, that the pursuit of pleasure is man's greatest and highest goal. But, Lord, rather our pursuit of you, our pursuit of living to your glory should be our greatest aim. So, Lord, help us, help us, Father, to live to your glory, to pursue your glory in everything that we do, everything that we say, every way that we think and act. Help us, Father, to pursue your glory and your, your glory alone. And, Lord, I pray also for our leaders, 
our government officials, those in authority, from the White House all the way down to our local magistrates, our councils and our commissions locally. We pray for all those in authority, Lord, that they may pursue your glory in everything that they do, everything that they legislate, everything that they propose, every measure and law that they pass, Lord, that they pursue your glory in these things. And Lord, even those who are not believers, those who reject you, through common grace, Lord, may they legislate and propose things that will be for human flourishing. And Lord, I pray that you hold them to account for all the evil that they concoct in this world also. And Lord, give them a heart of repentance to turn away from you and turn to Christ and be saved, that their sins may be blotted out. Lord, we pray for our local churches this morning, our faithful brethren who are laboring in good, faithful gospel ministry. We pray, Lord, for these faithful men here at our church, Anderson Bible, Grace Fellowship, Redeemer uh, Church, Christian Fellowship, uh, Hope Presbyterian, uh, Southside Baptist in Talladega, and Mountain View Church, and Iron City Baptist Church, First Baptist Lionville. Lord, we pray for all the faithful men shepherding those churches, that we be faithful to your word, faithful to shepherd the flock of God, faithful to not stray away into false teaching and false doctrine and chasing the trends of the world, faithfully sticking to truth without compromise. And Lord, bless our time in your word this morning as we get into a challenging part of our time in the book of Ephesians, looking at uh, different human relationships, the first one being uh, marriage. Lord, give me wisdom as I work through this text today. Fill me with your spirit to teach this passage well, that the spirit may encourage and uplift as well as convict and convince. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate your truths that we will hear this morning. Lord, may you be praised and glorified in the preaching of your word and in the hearing of your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen and amen. Amen. Let us turn to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. We are the 30th sermon in this book. We've been in the fifth chapter for a while looking at uh, walking wisely. And this morning for the next three Sundays, we're going to spend time in verses 22 through 33. Looking at marriage. Looking at marriage. Looking at the biblical view of marriage, not what Pastor Ron's opinion is on marriage. But what God says about marriage. And how we ought to look at it. We're going to see uh, a biblical overlook of marriage. Our overall uh, view is this section of Ephesians, Paul deals with relationships. He deals with relationships. The first relationship and the most important one he deals with is the relationship of marriage between husband and wife. And then in uh, beginning of chapter 6, he talks about children and parents, that relationship in the home. 
And then the third relationship he deals with is between slaves and their masters, or in our context, employers and employees. So he deals with these three relationships and how the Christian is to walk in these relationships. Always remember, we're looking at context here. Paul is writing to Christians. Now, unbelievers can look at these things and see what God's ideals are and strive for them. So we're looking at relationships. So we're going to read the text, Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. And these are the words of the Lord, and I'm reading from the uh, ESV translation. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Y'all hear that, wives? <laughs> you hear that, husbands? This is our command. Verse 25. Husbands. Love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for her. That he might sanctify. And cleanse her. With the washing of water by the word. That he might present her. To himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let he who has ears to hear, let him See what the Spirit says to the church. Just in observation in this passage here, if you notice, Paul put more emphasis on the role of who? The husband than the wife. And that's for a reason. Well, the wives and, and ladies will say amen loudly. Uh, but it's a reason for that. We'll get into that as we go through these next uh, few weeks in this passage. But you notice the, the, the tenor, the emphasis is on the husband and how he is to be toward his wife. Okay? But before we even get to this, what is marriage? Who defines marriage? What does marriage mean? Why marriage? All these questions I seek to uh, help answer Biblically, not culturally, but what the Bible says about it, because 
The fact of the matter is for Christians, I don't care what non-Christians think about it. For Christians, our authority is the word of God. Our authority is not secular, uh, godless culture because the world has a godless view of marriage. You hear people say, ah, oh, why do I need to get married? It's just a piece of paper. You hear that, right? That's one of the arguments against marriage, as if that's, that's such a sophisticated argument. It's actually a dumb argument. When you sign a lease for an apartment, that's not just a piece of paper. You have to honor that lease, even if it's done through DocuSign. When you buy a house, when you sit in that attorney's office, that closing attorney, and you're signing all those documents for that 30-year mortgage or that 15-year mortgage or whatever the case may be, those documents are not just pieces of paper. No, I don't have to honor my mortgage. I don't have to make these payments. After all, a mortgage is just a piece of paper. Yeah, stop paying your mortgage and see what happens. You're going to foreclosure and your credit will be ruined. You know, when the world says it's just a piece of paper, that shows you what our culture thinks of the institution of marriage. But the thing about the institution of marriage is that it is pre-political. In other words, it existed before politics. It existed before government. Marriage, the first marriage took place in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Marriage is God's institution. The government does not get to define marriage, although the government does. But marriage is not the government's responsibility. Because the government did not create marriage. That's what we mean by pre-political. It's pre-civilizational. It began uh, before Adam and Eve. God announced marriage instituted marriage and then Adam and Eve got married. Adam and Eve didn't get married first and then God said uh, a man shall leave his mother and, uh, father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So marriage is pre-civilizational. It is pre-political. It was pre-government. It was something that was ordained and instituted by God in the building of civilization because we're going to look at this uh, in Genesis, the first chapter, you can go ahead and turn there. Actually, Genesis, the second chapter. Go ahead and turn there. But we're going to see the mandate for marriage, what marriage means, what it is for, why it exists. Now, we're talking about God's ideal. Now, we live in a sinful and fallen world where some people are not married. Some people wish to be married, desire to be married, but haven't found a suitable uh, spouse. But God's ideal still doesn't change. His ideal is marriage. So looking at Genesis 2, and we're going to see the very first marriage ceremony take place. All right, so look down to verse 18. And I'm reading from the ESV. 
Okay, actually, I'm, I'm going to read the uh, New King James Version. It says here, And God and the Lord said, It is not good that man should be what? Alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, think about this. Adam had already been assigned to tend to the garden. Look back at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So that was Adam's job. He had all these animals that he had named, all these plants, all the vegetation. And, of course, he gave him the command of every tree you shall eat, but not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat, you shall surely die. So Adam's job was to tend to the garden, till the ground, make it fruitful, make it produce. But he was alone. He says, not good to man should be alone. So what did he do? Give him a suitable help, a suitable companion. Or as the, old, uh, the King James says, a help meet. He didn't give him an animal. He gave him a woman. Because look what happened. And the Lord God commanded the man of every... No, I'm sorry. I'm going back here. Verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field... And every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. So Adam gave, he gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help, help or comfort to him. He had all the animals. He had the cows and the pigs and whatever other types of animals. But he was still what? Alone. What does this show us? We appreciate Pets. We have more pets than people in this country. America is obsessed with dogs, especially. Pets are not bad to have. They're not, um, you know, there's nothing sinful about own. I mean, we have a dog. But the problem comes when people use animals as surrogates. You hear people that say such stupid stuff, and I say stupid because it is, that dogs are better than humans. I'd rather have a dog than a person. You know how sinful that is? Because animals are not made in the image of God. We are. Now, again, it's nothing wrong with having pets, a dog or a cat or whatever. Nothing wrong with those things. But when you think that that animal is supposed to be your helper, your suitable helper, you are putting an animal in the place of a human being and you're actually lowering the human being to the level of an animal. God gave us dominion over the animals. That's why Adam did what? Named all the animals. We as humans have dominion over the animal world. We're not, we're not part of the animal kingdom. That is an evolutionary term. We're not animals. We're not evolved animals. You know, people say, no, we're not part of the animal kingdom. We're not animals. <laughs> we are human beings made in the image of God. We are the imago Dei. We are image bearers of God. We're not part of the animal kingdom. Okay? We have dominion over them. So why am I saying all this? Because when we see marriage being established, God did not give us animals to be married to or them to be our suitable helper. He gave us woman he gave woman man so look what happens he has all these animals 
all these living creatures. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up his flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from him, he made into what? A woman. He built into a woman, literally, in the Hebrew. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, these are the first wedding vows. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, this is what Paul quoted in our passage. And this is what Jesus quoted in Matthew, the 19th chapter. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or the King James says cleaved. I like that word. Joined to his wife. And the two shall become what? One flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So this is the first wedding took, that took place. This is the first marriage in all of human history. It was between Adam and Eve. So again, we're talking about the origins of marriage. It didn't start with the government. The government does not define marriage. God does. In our day, you have different types of so-called marriage. You have a polyamory. Polyamory means many loves. The word amory comes from the root word amoris, which means love or amore. Many loves. People who believe in polyamory is multiple heterosexual people coming together to so-called form a family. It could be three men and two women or two women and five men or five men and four women. They call it polyamory. It is a move to legalize polyamory in our country. It's a reason why it is against the law. Then you have polygamy, which is legal in some parts of the, these United States. Polygamy is where you have one person of one uh, sex with multiple wives or husbands of the opposite sex. One man with two or three, quote, wives. Although you can only have one wife, okay? Or one woman with multiple husbands, although it's usually the other way around. It's a show that's been on TLC for a long time called Sister Wives. It's been on for a long time. What the world is trying to do is to normalize perversion. To pervert marriage and say, this is normal. Accept it. That's why there are laws against bigamy. If you don't know what bigamy is, bigamy is when uh, a person has uh, two husbands or more than one, mar married to more than one person at the same time. There are laws against bigamy. Like I have a wife in Alabama and I have another wife in Georgia. That's, that's bigamous. That's against the law. 
It's a reason why. Because deep down in man's soul, he knows that marriage is only between one man and one woman. But as Paul said in Romans 1, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Man knows the truth. Man knows what is true. The law of God is written on everyone's hearts. Everyone knows. Everyone has that God conscience that marriage is only between one man and one woman. Everyone knows that in their conscience, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Swinging. That's another thing, which is adultery. <laughs> That's all swing is, is adultery. You know, how, notice how the world comes up with all these uh, euphemisms, you know, these nice terms for sinful things like uh, uh, abortion instead of calling it abortion or infanticide, which is actually what it is. They'll say women's health care or pro-choice instead of saying what it is, it's abortion, it's murder. But the world sanitizes it by saying it's women's health care or, or you're pro-choice or Planned Parenthood. So the same thing with swinging. Swinging is adultery. And some of the justifications for it is, oh, it'll make our marriage better. It'll, it'll spice up our, our marriage. My wife and I know a, a, a couple well, two couples, and we know them very well. They they were swinging with another couple, and then one of the wives, her husband died. You know, he he, he died, and and she was a widow, and she ended up marrying the husband of the other woman that they were swinging with. Yeah, and they get married. Now, him and his wife divorced. Yeah, it, it wasn't a bigamous situation. Him and his wife divorced, but they ended up, she ended up marrying the, the husband of the other couple. You know how perverted that is? That is sick. But that's called marriage in our nation. And then you have people that say, oh, we have an open marriage, which is adultery. <laughs> long as he comes back home as long as she comes back home you can go out and see other people you can date and it's just, it's just the language just sounds so perverted and just so evil you're married to your wife but you say my husband is free to go out and date other women or my husband lets me go out and go out on dates with other men Friends, that is not amen. Uh, open marriage is an oxymoron. What does the scripture say? The two shall become what? One flesh. You can't be one flesh sleeping around with someone else and saying that you're married. That is not a marriage. You can have the name marriage just like a false apostate church can have church in their name, but they're not a church. They may gather on the Lord's Day to sing songs and pray prayers and listen to a false teaching sermon, but that doesn't make them a church. Not a true church. 
then that uh, open marriage is not a marriage. But this is what the world calls marriage. Homosexual marriage, same thing. It's not marriage. I don't use the term, quote, gay marriage because it's not a marriage. We get, we get so, con- our, the secular culture is masterful at conditioning us to say certain things without even thinking about what we're saying. The word gay marriage just rolls off everybody's tongue like it's just natural. I don't believe in gay marriage. There's no such thing as gay marriage, so don't even say gay marriage. It's a homosexual union, but it's not a marriage. And for those people that say, oh, you know, marriage is just a piece of paper, then why fight over getting married? Why fight over having uh, e- e- uh, marriage equality if marriage is just a piece of paper? The second world is very inconsistent. But homosexual, quote, marriage is not marriage because, as the Bible says again, three times, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, not his husband, or a woman cleaving to her wife. Marriage is inherently binary. Two homosexuals cannot get married. They would never be one flesh. Never. And then you have people who cohabitate. Some of them say, well, I've talked to cohabitating couples before in in my 31, 32 years as a Christian and as a preacher. Why don't you go and get married, man? Well, why do you get married to show my commitment to my partner and I'm going to tell you you know a, a word that really triggers me is the word partner that's a word that, that makes my blood boil when people say that that they have a partner you know how cheap that is it is it's a, it's a cheap name that someone is your partner you know why that's the guilt of not wanting to get married So when people say, oh, it's just a piece of paper. I don't need a piece of paper to. So basically what you're saying is, I want to live life on my own terms. I want to do life my way. I don't want to do it God's way. I know that God has his way of two people being together, but I don't care what God says. I want to do it my way. I want to live life on my own terms. And by golly, I am. That's what they're saying. I was reading this article by a, uh, this article by in Newsweek called Yes to Love and No to Marriage. And talks about a lady named Bonnie. She says that marriage is not necessary to demonstrate the love and commitment she feels for her partner. She says, I'm a 42-year-old woman who has lived mostly on my own terms. I have never sought a husband and have still experienced intense affirming love. She went on to say that Jeff, now this is the thing, Jeff proposed to her. 
but she wanted to remain single. That's a slap in the face to that man. I would have left. This man proposed to her, and he's a simp by staying with her when she said no. She listed a number of the common arguments for her position. We're committed to spending our future together, pursuing our dreams and facing life's challenges in partnership. Yet I don't need a piece of paper from the state to strengthen my commitment to Jeff. I do not believe in a religion that says romantic committed love is more only if couples pledge to join allegiance to God. You have to deny and reject God in order to reject marriage because it's God's institution. I don't need a white dress to feel pretty. Who says you have to wear a white dress? And I have no desire to pretend I'm virginal. I don't need to have Jeff propose to me as if he's chosen me. Ooh. She must be a feminist. I don't need a ring as a daily reminder to myself or others that I am loved. That's not what the ring represents. And I don't need Jeff to say publicly that he loves me because he says it privately. Not just in words, but in daily actions. No, because if he loved you, he would put a ring on it. I tell single ladies this all the time. If you're dating a guy. Because this is what happens now. 60% of people are cohabitating. Cohabitation gives you a worse chance once you get married than if you never did do it. People who cohabitate have a higher divorce rate than those who don't cohabitate and get married. That don't mean if you cohabitate, don't get married. It's just saying that the chances are greater of getting a divorce than if you never did cohabitate. But this is what happens now. Boy meets girl or girl meets boy. And they move in together. The boy is saying in his mind, why have the whole cow when I can just drink the milk? I tell young ladies this. If that man don't want to marry you, he's telling you that you're not worthy of being committed to. That's what he's telling you. He wants the milk. He don't want the whole cow. Why? Well, he wants the cheese. He doesn't want the milk, the curd that makes the cheese. If he doesn't want to come to you and say, I want to commit my life to you, you need to kick him to the curb. This lady Oh, he loves me. If he loves you, lady, he would put a ring on and you would acquiesce and say, I do. I am Jeff's partner, his friend and his lover, and he is mine. The term, quote, husband and quote, wife wouldn't even begin to describe our relationship. You're right. <laughs> because it's, it's, it's not a right relationship anyway. It says she also reasoned that marriage was no guarantee of success in a relationship and she says she could not accept the fact that homosexual couples were denied the right to marry I don't want to send a message to anyone including my daughter who may someday choose a same sex life partner that the value of their relationship can be determined by law and the affirmation of others so she's 
cohabitating for all the wrong reasons. But this is the world's view. This is a snapshot of how the secular world views marriage. That is just a piece of paper that is, is it's just a sheet and that's it that is, 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 is meaningless. It's nothing to it. It doesn't mean anything. But for the Christian, it's different. Some of the responses to this article, it says here, naturally her article drew quite a few comments from Newsweek readers. Quite a few applauded her, saying, what a refreshing article. Somebody wrote, I'm in a loving relationship that we have chosen not to justify with a marriage certificate. I don't think that how I chose to love my partner is condescending any more than those who chose marriage are condescending to me. It's just a choice. But some were critical. One person said, if she's really in love with Jeff and she plans to stay with him forever, then she should marry him because he asked her to. Obviously, it means something to him. In addition, if she doesn't marry, she'll miss out on the deep, loving place her relationship has the potential to go. I had no idea that I could love my husband any more than I already did. Then after we got married, the intensity of our relationship deepened to a place I never thought it could. I am more madly in love with him today than I have ever been. An extraordinary state of happiness I wouldn't be enjoying if we never married. Trying to preach. If we need to close that door, Harvey, do we need to close that door? Because I'm, I'm being very distracted up here. Okay. Our culture is increasingly me-oriented. Our culture is increasingly focused on self, about personal fulfillment. That's what our that's what our culture is all about. It's all about self and personal fulfillment. That's what it's about. And so that's why that view of marriage is so popular about it just being a piece of paper or this whole partner thing. But there's a value in marriage, not just for the individual, but for society as a whole. But we have forces in our country and in our world that are trying to destroy marriage because they're actually trying to destroy society. One of the mandates that marriage has that God instituted was that a man and woman in, in marital commitment are to be fruitful and multiply. 
when you destroy the institution of marriage, you're working to destroy a civilization. And when you say that all these other types of marriage, uh, all these other types of so-called marriages are marriage, you're working to destroy a society. Marriage is one of the fabrics, one of the building blocks of a society. But we have forces that are trying to destroy that. To the point where the marriage rates here in America have decreased over uh, the last generation. If you notice now, you all probably didn't notice, uh, probably even heard of it, but there's a company called David's Bridal. David's Bridal uh, is a company that sells, you know, bridal dresses and tuxedos and different things like that. But David's Bridal filed for bankruptcy back in, I think it was February or March of this year. And you know what that's a sign of? People are not getting married as much as they used to anymore. People are waiting longer to get married or not getting married at all. When things like that happen, when you see shifts like that in culture, we have to think biblically about those things. Why is a bridal store closing down? A bridal chain because fewer people are getting married anymore. And you think about also the rise of wedding barns. A lot of people are not getting married in churches anymore. You don't see that a lot anymore. People getting married in church. They're getting married. You know, people are building wedding barns. It's, it's a business now. People are building, you know, people have a lot of property, a lot of land. You know, they're, and they, I, I've, I've appreciated a couple of weddings at wedding barns. I mean, they're very nice. I like the aesthetics of it. But just think about the institution of marriage getting away from the church. It's a reason for that. Because the value of marriage has diminished in our culture. And the move away from God, the continued slide of our nation away from God. And we see it in the decline in marriage rates. We see it in the rise of cohabitation. We see it in the rise of single uh, family homes. We see it in the rise of divorce rates. We see it in the rise of, uh, again, people not getting married in church as much. People not buying, buying wedding dresses as much anymore. All these things are changing. Why? Because our society is walking away from God and everything that God has ordained is good, including marriage. So as we look at this passage this week and next week and the week after, my, my goal is for us to see marriage as something glorious something that is good, something that we as Christians should, as much as we can, attain to. If that's God's calling. Now, it may not be God's calling for everyone. Paul himself, who wrote this, Paul wasn't married. Paul was a eunuch. He committed himself to the service of God and the service of the church by writing to the saints in different cities by going on missionary journeys. That was Paul's calling to be a eunuch. That was his calling. But because he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he could write to married couples. He could talk about how marriage should look. He could talk about 
uh, divorce because God was writing through him through the means by means of the Holy Spirit. You can't look at Paul and say, oh, Paul, what does Paul know about marriage? He was a eunuch. <laughs> no, Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was the Lord speaking to us through the writing of the Apostle Paul. So that's just my introduction to this whole series as we are uh, looking at this. And we'll look at some more things as we, as we go along through these uh, messages. But I just want to kind of paint the picture of marriage, what marriage is, why marriage is important, who uh, start, where did marriage come from. I want to get to that in my introduction. So now we're going to start beginning to focus on our passage. So let's look again at these first few verses. Again, Paul is talking about the spirit for your life. We're going back in context to uh, the fourth chapter again, where Paul talks about the new man, that we don't walk as the Gentiles walk, verse 17 of uh, uh, Ephesians, the fourth chapter, because they're darkened in their understanding about marriage. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And we see that in their views of marriage due to the hardness of their hearts. And it shows in their view of marriage. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 4.19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. So we learn Christ differently. We walk wisely. We walk differently, even in our relationships. So God has given us wisdom when it comes to marriage. When I do marriage counseling, which I do on occasions with people who are not uh, in our church, I haven't had to do it with anyone here lately. I, I had to do it before. But this is one of the places that I start, but I also start in Genesis 1, beginning with who is God, and then Genesis 1, 27, 26, 27, 28, who are you? You were made as an image bearer of God. You were made in God's image. You were uh, made to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And then what is marriage? We look back at Genesis, the second chapter, and look at the fact that a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, that you become one. You're no longer two, but you are one. You are together. You're not apart. It's not a 50-50 thing. It's not even a 100-100 thing. You're just one flesh. You're flesh of each other's flesh. You're bone of each other's bones. You belong to each other. Your body belongs to your wife, and your wife's body belongs to the husband. That is marriage. No one should know how your wife's body looks except the husband. And no one should know how your husband's body looks except for the wife. I talked about that before with how women dress out in public. No man should know how... No woman, rather, only a, a woman's husband should know how her body looks. And only a woman's, only a man's wife should know how his body looks. Because your bodies belong to each other. Not to the world, not to Instagram, not to Facebook, not to Snapchat, not to OnlyFans. No, your body belongs to your husband or your wife. I don't even like the word spouse. And this is just uh, 
straining a gnat. I don't like the word spouse personally because spouse can be anybody. A man's spouse in our culture can be another man. On some applications for different things, relationship it'll say spouse instead of husband or wife. Instead of son or daughter, it'll just say child. Now, you know, you say stepson, stepdaughter, that's, you know, still a child in a legal sense. But they're erasing categories and distinctions. That's what the world seeks to do. But the Bible gives us something better. So, Paul begins this text again with controversy. Wives. Let me make sure my glasses are on clearly as I read this passage. Wives do what? Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. The danger that we can fall into as Christians is the same danger that the world can fall into also. We can't consider this paragraph in vain. Dr. Uh, D. Martin Lord Jones, he was a, a British preacher of the 20th century. He was a great... the same as it is with everybody else. The only difference being that these two people happen to be Christian whereas the others are not. Now that is still our conception of marriage then we have considered this great paragraph entirely in vain. Christian marriage, the Christian view of marriage is something that is essentially different from all views. Christian marriage is different it is not the same as two unbelievers and that is the view that we should put up because and why is that so because Christian marriage is a picture of the gospel because what does Paul say here Christ is the head of the church so when Paul, we look through these next few weeks, Paul is equating the wife with the church and the husband with Christ. Marriage is a picture, as I say here on the uh, big idea, marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. That is the Christian ideal for marriage, that it is a picture. between the relationship between Christ and the church. Hey, Jim, you give me those batteries in that thing over there? My battery pack is flashing red. We do this right quick. We're live. This is real time. Don't worry, I do that all the time, too. time on it.
<laughs> I could tell it made that little noise when it went out. There we go. Now I'm back in business. Thank you, sir. All right. Well, I thought I was. Came in, went back off. We've had a lot of fumbles today, haven't we? <laughs> I think because of the food, seems like what it is. There we go. Now we're back in business. All right, so, but marriage is about Christ and the church. It's the relationship between the two. That is the Christian view of marriage. And that is what marriage is about. And that is a very high ideal to attain to, but that is God's ideal for us. So, the first thing we have to look at is what Paul addresses first. He addresses the wives. So, he addresses the wives and their responsibility in the Christian marriage first. Now, this isn't because wives are the bigger problem or because the wives need special attention. Some people may disagree. <laughs> but the reason is that the apostle, he was particularly concerned about the question of submission. That's why he did this. But Paul addressed submission back in the 21st verse when he says, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. So, when Paul is talking about submission in marriage, he's not saying that only the wives are to submit and not the husbands. Because as believers, okay, the ideal is that two married people are believers. He's speaking to Christians. You know, we're not to marry unbelievers as Christians. Never do that. Because you're going to be unequally yoked. As believers, me and my wife, we're husband and wife, but we're also brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we're both believers. So we still submit to one another as Christians. But we're also married. So the principle was introduced in the 21st verse. Now, this aspect of submission is, 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 uh, has particular application, rather, to the wives. And Paul used the same application in the sixth chapter of Ephesians when he talks about children. Children are addressed before parents. He said, children do what? Obey your parents in the Lord. So he's talking about submission. And then slaves, later on in chapter 6 are addressed before their masters because Paul is concerned about submission. Now, wives submit. Now, what does submit mean? Wives submit means to do whatever your husband tells you to do no matter what. No. I thought somebody was going to say, no, you're wrong, pastor. Okay. Submit doesn't mean be a doormat. Doesn't mean be a doormat. Doesn't mean to be a pansy. Doesn't mean to let your husband knock you around. But we'll get to re why we'll get to that. I want to put the cart before the horse. But that's not what submit means. Submit means that you recognize that someone has legitimate authority over you. 
It means that you recognize there's a order of authority. Even in the home, there's an order of authority. In Genesis 3, when God, you know, God uh, cursed Adam and Eve, he laid the curses on them. One thing he told Eve, so I guess you can blame Eve, Adam and Eve for this. You can because of the fall. He told Eve, your desire will be for your husband. What did he mean by that? Turn to Genesis 3 real quick. Some of you are looking. That's in the Bible? Yes. Uh, Genesis 3. And we're going to explain what this means and how this deals with uh, submission. So this is uh, the fall when, fall when the fall happened. Verse 16, Genesis 3, to the woman. He cursed the serpent back in verses uh, 14 to 15. Then he cursed the woman. Not cursed, but basically laid out judgment. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So before the fall, women didn't experience birth pains. Before the fall. In pain you shall bring forth children. So how many mothers do we have in here? That pain that you felt, you blame Eve. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was because it was not supposed to be pain in childbearing until the fall, until sin. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, what does this mean? There'll be an ongoing struggle between the woman and the man for leadership in the marriage relationship. That's what that meant. The leadership role of the husband and the complementary relationship between husband and wife that were ordained by God before the fall has been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. Remember, when God made Eve, he made her a what? Suitable companion, a compliment to her, compliment to him, rather. The wife was supposed to come alongside him. But now because of sin, guess what the wife's going to do? Fight with her husband. Usurp, try to usurp his authority in the home. So that's what God meant when he said your desire would be for your husband. It means, uh, your desire would be to be your husband. To take your husband's role in the home. That's what the world does. There's a order in marriage. There's a order in the home. Imagine if your children. Try to parent you. You can look at them like. Who do you think you are? Right mom and dad. You're the child. Isn't it right? You're the child. I'm the parent. What happens when your children try to usurp your authority in the home? It causes what? Chaos. Why? Because it's out of order. It's out of God's order. Same thing with wife and husband. When the wife tries to take on the husband's role. 
And the wife may say, oh, well, my, my husband won't step up and be the leader. Okay. Let's entertain that. We don't submit to our husbands. Number one, submission is not a sign of inferiority. That's the first thing. But number two, if your husband is not, quote, you know, acting like the man of the house or whatever, what view do you have uh, of the man of the house? It is, a, it is, is it a biblical view or is it a worldly view? Those are, those are the questions that we must ask. But when Paul here talks about submission, he is saying that the wife is not supposed to usurp her husband's authority in the home. When the wife tries to be the husband, it makes her less of a wife. When the husband tries to be like the wife, it makes him less of a husband. Because his responsibility is even greater than the woman's. We talked about this when we read the passage. Paul spent most of his time talking to who? The husbands. I wouldn't want that as a wife. <laughs> That's a lot of responsibility. So when he's talking about submission here, again, this word has been caricatured. People have always talked about the two ditches. You've gone too far into this ditch. You're a man who like, I'm the man, and you're going to obey me no matter what. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. But it also does not mean that the wife is to subvert the order in the home. You recognize that there's an order of authority, just like it is in the home. You're a part of a unit. You're part of a team. Now, when we submit to God, we recognize God's authority and act accordingly. When we submit to the police, we recognize that there's an order of authority, right? When that police pulls us over, you do what? Recognize his authority and you comply. Don't be an idiot and get shot trying to resist authority or trying to argue with authority or try to flee the scene or try to get out your car and scuffle with the police officer. What happens? You end up in trouble or dead? Dead or in jail? Why? Because even our society recognizes what? Orders of authority. Although people now try to say we don't need police officers anymore until crime gets real high in their cities and then they want to cry. But there's an order of what? Authority. When the ambulance comes screaming down the street with those sirens, there's an order of authority there. The ambulance has authority, that fire truck has authority, and we have to do what? Get over. That's a sign of authority. On your jobs, all of us have an authority figure. We may not like them, but who cares about that? We'll get to that when we deal with slaves obeying your masters. But there's still an order of what? Authority. If you've ever been in authority before on a job, 
You know how it is when people disrespect your authority. You don't like it. So in the home, there is an order of authority. There's authority in all of those spheres of life, including the home. Husband, wife, children. Children submit to their parents. Wife submits to her husband. And who does the husband submit to? Okay. Husband submits to Christ. So Paul says, why submit? So I hope I'm giving a good, fair thing about submission. Submission does not mean silence. The word submission literally means, you have to break it down. This is a two-syllable word, submission. There is a mission for the Christian marriage, and that mission is to obey and to glorify God. And the wife says, I'm going to put myself under that mission. Sub means to put under something like a submarine goes under, puts itself under water. And that mission is more important than individual desires. The husband and wife is supposed to build their own little kingdom work together. Each home, understand this, each home represents a little kingdom into itself. In the Christian way, in the Christian home, your house is a mini kingdom. Where the children submit to the mom and dad. And then the wife submits to the husband. And the husband submits to Christ. That's how it works. So again, submission is not inferiority. It'll mean that the wife is less than her husband. Again, that's how the culture views it. And that's why they hate the word marriage. Because unfortunately, some Christians, some groups of Christians have given a false view of what submission is. It doesn't mean that the wife, my wife is not inferior to me. She's my complement. As I submit to God's rule over me and over our household, she submits to my authority over the home. And friend, I tell you, I'm not some abusive husband who verbally abuses my wife if she doesn't submit. I don't go around saying I'm the man in the house. I don't have to do that. I just worship God. Of course, she does too, but I'm following Christ and worshiping Christ, and she submits to that authority, and she respects that. So three things here. Paul says, who are wives to submit to? Number one, they're what? Own husbands. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands. This is the sphere of the wife's submission. The Bible never commands a general submission of women unto men in society. Their primary role of submission is to who? Their own husbands. My wife is not to submit to another man. Only to Ronald Bernard Haygood Sr. I'm the only one she's supposed to submit to. Okay? So this is only in the home and in the church. And then he says, submit as to who? The Lord. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So this is a very crucial 
phrase. It defines everything we're talking about with this passage. She submits to the husband as she submits to the Lord. And this doesn't mean that the wife will submit to her husband as long as he does what the Lord wants. Because the wife submits to the Lord also. Okay? Wives submit to your husbands and to your own husbands because it is part of your duty to the Lord. That's basically what Paul means. Because it is, a, is, is, it is an expression of your submission to the Lord. That is what Paul means when he says that. For wives, you submit to your husbands and do it as part of your submission to the Lord. That's what that means. In other words, wives, when you submit it to your husbands, you're not doing it only for your husband, but you're also doing it for who ultimately? You're doing it for the Lord. Just like Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Because ultimately, children are obeying their parents to the Lord or in the Lord. So wives, they are submitting to their husbands as to the Lord. It's part of her Christian life and obedience. And when a wife does not submit to her own husband, she's falling short as a follower of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get to the husbands next week. And the week after that. But Paul is telling the wives, you submit as a follower of Christ to your husband. And this again is out of the wife's nature. It is outside of her nature. Why? Because of the fall. Because God told Eve that your desire is going to be for your husband. The wife's submission to the husband is not natural. It is something that is wrought by the Holy Spirit working inside of her. Wives are not going to naturally submit to their husbands and it has nothing to do with the husband's intelligence his giftedness his capabilities it has to do with honoring the Lord Jesus Christ that a wife submits it has nothing to do with whether your husband is right or wrong about a particular thing but it matters about honoring the Lord Jesus that is what matters so wives when you're thinking about this, future-wise, when you think about this, your highest goal in submitting to your husband is because you want to do what is pleasing to the Lord. That's who you should have in mind. Now, this means mistakes are made. We have to allow room for grace. We have, we have, uh, we, we have divorced people in our church. We have single moms in our church. And the Lord loves you no less because of that. And I want to tell you that. He loves you no less because you're divorced. He loves you no less because you're a single mom. God's love for you is 
not, is, is not withstanding you. God's love doesn't change towards you because of your station in life. Okay. God's love towards us is based on Christ and his work on our behalf and us being in Christ. Okay. So I want to qualify that by saying that. That God's love doesn't change because you're divorced. His love doesn't change because you're a single mom. His, 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 his love for you doesn't change because you're a widow. It's still the same no matter what. The love of God never changes. Amen. But again, we're talking about God's ideal. His ideal. A woman should take great care in how she chooses her husband. Instead of just looking at attractiveness. Instead of looking at just wealth. Instead of looking for a, quote, romantic man, a woman, a woman should look for a man that she can respect. A man that she can respect. A man that she can respect. We have to be careful in who we choose. I was careful when I chose my wife before we started dating in college. I did all the foolish stuff. And I began to realize this girl's not marriage material. That girl's not marriage material. I don't want to marry a girl like that. If she like this now, she's going to be worse when we get married. <laughs> I mean, that, that, was, that was my mindset. I thought about those things as I got older and, and stopped being young, dumb, and stupid. Women, you have to be the same way when choosing a husband. You want a man who, who is a, who's a, who's a godly man. Not a man who says he's a Christian, but a man who actually is one. Not culturally, but he's, he's born again. He's a believer. He's in a good church, a solid church. So when you think about that, a man that you would love to submit to and serve the Lord with, those are the ideals that we should strive to. Amen. So we're going to start right there for today. We're going to pray and we'll deal with the husband starting next week. And we got to that. The, the, the men are so bad. We got to spend about uh, two sermons on the men. Uh, you know, Paul wrote almost twice as many verses for the men as for the women as far as the husbands. But we'll get to that next week. But let's just pray and close right quick and thank the Lord for uh, his word. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. We have some distractions, uh, but we thank you that the gospel can still go forth and be proclaimed that your word is not bound. I pray, Lord, that you use this sermon to. Encourage the faithful, encourage our wives and encourage those who are not wives yet, who still desire to be wives. That those of us. Who are wives who are, are not who are single, who are unmarried, who desire to have a husband, Lord, that you send a godly man their way, a man who they would be willing to uh, submit to as to submitting to you. Those who desire a husband desire a good thing. That you may send a godly man their way. And Lord help us as a church to see. 
and to support and to encourage our wives and our single women to love them and to shepherd their hearts and to disciple them into being good wives when they uh, do meet their husband. But Lord, while they're in their singleness, may they dedicate that to worship of you also, to not waste it away in frivolous things as the world does, but in their singleness, Lord, Lord, still use that as a means to, to serve you and to serve your church and to serve your people. And Lord, I pray that you convict those who are in sin, that they may repent and turn to you and be saved. And also, Lord, that you bring salvation to those who hear this online and those who may listen to the sermon podcast. Lord, thank you for our time together in your word and in prayer and in praise to you. Bless our time and our fellowship meal, our time of fellowship with each other. Thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation that you've given us, that you've granted to all who believe. In Christ's name I pray, amen.